It's Dr. Sue's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm virtually here with, as usual, with the best co-host in the business, my dear friend and colleague, Bliss Young. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing pretty good. Good morning. All right, well, we're going to get to that. because First, we have to tell you, we have to catch up on a few things. We have to tell people that the podcast app, is still not working too well, but you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, your Instagram is um, at Birthing Bliss Midwifery, correct? Yeah. And I'm at Birthing Instincts. And you can find the podcast later on. Of course, people who are listening to it don't need to find it later on. So that's sort of a dumb thing to say. But on rumble.com and the uh, search word, my term is Birthing Instincts, all one word. Um, you can find it there. You can write to me at askdrstew at gmail.com. You can write to bliss at birthingbliss.com. And Bliss's website is birthingbliss.com. Yeah, you know what? I actually really like um, podcast people to DM me on Instagram. I think it's the easiest way for me to kind of keep track. So if you want to talk to me or ask me a question, um, DM me on Instagram. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I would like people to either email me at askdrstew at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram. I get messages on Facebook that I find like, you know, a week later, two weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. I feel really bad about that because as you know, I've always said, I, I do respond to pretty much every podcast that I get. Yeah. You're really good about that. Yeah. It's really awesome. Every, every letter I get, not podcast. Okay, yeah. so I, on my mind was, by the way, did you see the photo that I used for this podcast? Yeah, it's like an um, ultrasound yeah. photo. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I thought it was a really cool photo, okay? But people didn't, I didn't get a lot of comments going, geez, Stu, that's a really cool photo. So <laughs> if you think it's a really cool photo, I'd love a comment that says, geez, Stu, that's a really cool photo. Because it was a really cool photo. I mean, it was actually, the, the kid was doing this, and it was just, you know, how often does that, you get a perfect thing like that, so... A thumbs up. Yeah. And we're working on it really hard to get the podcast app back up again. So, all right. So um, I'm feeling great. I had a nice hike yesterday. The horses are doing great. My dulce is getting better. Um, I went on a hike with my friend Lauren and her new baby. We went, uh, she's five weeks old and we went on a over four mile hike um, up in Thousand Oaks. So it was great. And we were both worn out at the end. I got to carry, I get to carry the baby sometimes when we go hiking. So that's sort of fun. That's very fun. It's right here in front of you. And um, yeah, it's a great feeling. I think I'll, I'll post a picture about that pretty soon. And uh, yeah, so that's about it for me. What's up with you? Anything special? Anything you want to talk about? Anything you don't want to talk about? If you don't <laughs> want to talk about it, then don't talk about it. Um, I think Stu is alluding to, I had another pretty big loss, um, when I returned home from Hawaii. And so, you know, it's like you, you kind of get some footing with grief and then, um, this felt like I kind of got kicked backwards a little bit. So I'm just, um, riding the waves of grief again, I think is, uh, probably the best way to describe it. So tired. Do you, do you, do the, do the waves just, do the waves get smaller? And every now and then there's a surge or, or, I mean, do they ever go away? Well, I don't know. Cause I'm, you know, it's according to what people say, I'm in pretty early stages of grief, even though it's about 15 months past my daughter's passing, but this, you know, this, I don't think you ever get over that. I'm sorry. 
Yeah. This friend was very close. It's one of my best friend's husband. Uh, so, and she was very supportive um, during my time of grief. And so it's just, it's complex, you know, it's really complex to like want to be there for someone the way that they were there for you, but you've got so many more like triggers. So it's just a lot of processing about like, how do I take good care of myself and still really be there for someone who's so special to me in her time of need. Um, so what I'm finding is that I'm, I'm, you know, I have a lot of the uh, initial um, kind of effects of grief, which is um, memory loss, you know, things that like just get really foggy yeah. um, and I'm really tired and I have to remind myself it's like, it's grief. You know, it's just, um, it's just grief. So I've taken back to walking every day. I'm walking an hour every day in nature as a priority for my own self-care and making sure that that is just a non-negotiable. Is grief, grief, would you say it's similar to depression or it's a a form of depression? Because memory loss, that sort of thing, feeling tired, that's, uh, that's classically some of the things that happen when you're depressed is that you have those Yeah, well, grief has a lot of different stages, right? So there could be anger, there could be, you know, um, actually, I'm reading, I'm reading a book right now, which is on uh, my, um, the grief midwife um, Instagram that I have, which I keep separate from my birth um, work. But um, it's called the sixth stage of grief, which is um, when you're finding meaning in loss. So there are actually six stages now. Um, so sometimes it's, it feels actually, like depression, but, but, you know, not, not all the time. That's the great thing about grief is it's so individual for everybody and it, you know, it moves around so much. So that's where I am. But I did think, I did think I found my, uh, my RV. I thought I found my RV and then the, man of the couple started to have cold feet. So I don't think I found my RV, but I got very excited for a minute that maybe I found my RV. Are you, are you going to buy it? I'm going to buy it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And then we're thinking about what, what am I going to name my RV? So that's the other thing we're figuring out. That's something that very personal. You'll have to figure that out. (laughs) Like naming a baby. (laughs) Yeah. I, I just want to tell you that, that you, you know, with your glasses, we can see the uh, your ring light. Oh, I know. It's just the way that it is. Okay, so I just want people yeah. to think you don't have some silly face thing on your um, <laughs> on, on your uh, on your screen, you know, with face shot or something, right? It's just the way it is when you have glasses. Okay. Um, so, I did have two births since I got back. All right, let's briefly talk about those. Sure. Um, you know, they were both like just beautiful, uh, multip births. Um, okay, so one was one was the Dr. Seuss podcast birth update for today. <laughs> <laughs> Two great one was birth. born in the water. Um, she had a traumatic first delivery. Um, and you know, her friends had had the home deliveries with me and, and, and helped her make the decision to do this. And, um, was really beautiful to just watch her be able to follow her instincts and br- bring her baby into her own arms in the water, the comfort of her home. And, how healing that can be for a second time mom. The other mom also had um, what she would say was a traumatic first delivery. She did our innate journey class, um, lots of processing, lots of planning, had a doula, like 
all of the preparation. And then when she finally told me that she was um, sure that this was labor, because she had kind of labored for a couple of nights, um, as I was getting dressed, her husband said, she's feeling pushy. And I was like, oh, I may not make this one. I was 18 minutes away. It was in the Hollywood Hills at night. So it was very windy and curvy. And um, I walked in. I told, I reminded him to open the front door so I could get in quickly. And I walked in to hear very loud expressions coming from downstairs. And um, I got her in the shower and the next contraction, her baby was, was in their arms. So it's interesting to like have all of this preparation and then, you know, the body just does what the body does. And the husband was so funny because he remembered the last time at the hospital that the pushing phase took like an hour. So when I got there and she was saying that the baby was coming, he's like, should I fill the tub? And I was like, no, there's no time for that, but it didn't compute for him. You know, it just didn't, he he thought it was going to be like an hour still. And Mm -hmm. so then he, he caught the baby in the shower And, um, later on when we were, you know, cozied up in bed, he said, you basically just sneezed that baby out. And she's like, "Mm, wasn't exactly like sneezing the baby out, but it was really awesome. And, and they were so glad that I was able to, to be present and to make it. Yeah. That is a great birth story. That's the kind of birth story that we love to hear. That's the kind of birth story then in the medical world where they would have told her to get into a car and drive to the hospital. And she would have had her baby in the, in the car on the side of the road, right? I know. Or also, don't push. Put your legs together. We have to wait. You know, all those things that happen, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a non-birth story because I haven't had – I don't really have anybody due till mid-March. I said a twin. So, But I, I was contacted this week by somebody who contacted me last fall. Uh, she's twins. She's in Temecula, which is about – a two and a half hour drive on a good day could be four hours <laughs> on a bad day, depending on that. And um, she was, she had initially was going to, she talked to me, but she decided to have a hospital birth. Um, she found a doctor who would do twin vaginal delivery, but only if the babies were both head down. And of course now she's 37 weeks and baby A is head down, but baby B is breached. So he wants to do a C-section on her. So she's looking at all her options and she contacted me. The problem, of course, is that the midwife that she knows in her area is not skilled with twins. She hasn't been seeing her, but she knows her. And the one midwife that's in her area, relatively speaking, um, who is good with twins is stuck in a snowstorm in Texas and yeah. can't get back right now. So she's in a bit of a dilemma about what to do. But it really is so frustrating for me, as everyone knows who listens to me, the idea that a second twin breach is not something a skilled an obstetrician who's probably board certified knows how to do. And so she's in a dilemma and it's not her first baby. Uh, she's going to have a fast labor like your, you know, like your client did. Yeah. And so I might not get there in time. So we would have to have, if, if she was going to go this route, she would have to have a midwife who's confident in doing that. And there's so many of the midwives that are confident in doing that. And so few obstetricians that are, it's just an interesting uh, and yet it's illegal for us to do that. They made it illegal for you in 2014. Yes, they took it away. in California. In California. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're local centric people. I mean, we talk mostly about what goes on in our area, which we'll get to in a second. I had a, uh, another coronavirus test negative. <laughs> Great. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, you know me, I, I, I would really like to, uh, 
you know, sort of get it and not be sick with it and then have it over and done with. But that's the way it goes. Okay, so we've got some uh, news stories here. First of all, I just wanted to talk briefly to my friends in Texas, especially in Austin. Um, uh, Lindsay from BirthFit and the Vanderbeeks and all that stuff. I've been watching your posts and I feel for you guys <laughs> because uh, James put a post up. He said, he said to his friends who told him to move to Texas, he, he writes, quote, you lied, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Um, what's not funny, of course, is that uh, that 25, Texas gets 25% of its energy from green energy from windmills in West Texas. And, and it's not funny, but the windmills froze. And they're not uh -huh. So a lot of people in Texas are without power. And some are literally freezing to death. And this is a you know, again, I'm not going to get into the discussion of green energy because I think it's a good idea. I just think that it's got to come when it's ready. And right now it's not ready for prime time. And to put that much reliance in a state like Texas, where you put 25% of your energy grid on green energy, um, and then you have these storms that come maybe once a decade or something like that. And suddenly you've got temperatures in the teens or zeros and you have no heat and no electricity. And that's a problem. So, yeah. You know, my sister is there too. She doesn't have power uh, or water. Wow. Water? Because the pipes froze? Yeah. And they're not prepared for that either. No, they, yeah. It's like in the living in the mountains, you have to, you have to um, winterize your home. Uh, mm -hmm. Or in Minnesota, we had, you know, obviously things were designed for that, but not, they're not designed for that in Texas. Yeah. And Emily, our, our, my assistant um, is, is in Austin and she's had no internet access. So there's a lot of things we can't, we weren't able to, we weren't able to do this week. So I wish them well and hopefully it warms up and um, they figure, they figure out that, that issue. Yeah. Okay. Um, thinking about you. A local issue here, and you know, that probably you may even know more about it than I do is uh, what's going on with the UCLA midwives. And it's a very upsetting issue. And I just wanted to, um, I got, I got, I was on an email chain with the LA midwife group and somebody wrote, I heard the UCLA midwives group was closed down or fired. Seems to be true. Anyone hear about what happened? Perhaps it's just about doctors taking over question mark. And then I got an email from one of the UCLA, I didn't get it. It went to the group from the UCLA midwives it was forwarded by somebody. And yes, it's true. We got this message says, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Hope you and your families and patients are safe and healthy. Our practice is closing. It's very sad and shocking. I am reaching out to create an up-to-date list of birth center and home birth services for our patients, right? No reason, no reason was actually given. And then I got a, another email from somebody who might be in the know and she wrote this. Wow, what a shame. Not sure what the reasons are, but from my history, when the census dropped at the county facilities, they moved the residents over to the private site so they could continue to keep up the same amount of volume for the residents. They just gave our caseload, which self-selected to work with the midwives to the residents. And we were just let go. This is from a midwife who used to work at another hospital down in the South Bay area. I did stay on and started my own practice, um, but I was no longer an employee of USC and all the benefits that went along with it. Such a shame. They were a great resource. So do you know any more about this? Do you know any of the whys? You know, no, I mean, I, I know that people are very upset and it, it, is, um, it is very disappointing because I feel like when people came to me and wanted kind of a happy medium, they felt more comfortable in the hospital or maybe it was financial insurance reasons 
why they um, felt like they needed to be in the hospital. This was a good option for them. And, um, you know, they practiced the way that um, hospital-based midwives practice. So it tended to be a little bit more medicalized than, you know, having a home birth. But again, it was a really um, beautiful kind of in-between option for people that just is no longer available. And um, the, what I've kind of heard in terms of like rumors, but nothing really validated is that it's a financial reason. And, you know, I started to kind of think about like, why would it cost more money for the midwives? But probably what it is, is that there's less interventions that are being utilized. And that's just not uh, financially viable, you know, the, the C-sections, the epidurals, all of those added things cost money. And, um, yeah, it's just not, it's just not, uh, working for them on their bottom line. Yeah. There was a meme that's, that, that somebody put out that I reach that I, um, put in my story about something like that, that normal birth or something is not profitable. And, uh, therefore it's, you know, it, 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 I hope we have time today because we're going to get one of the things I wanted to discuss was the way uh, I'm reading a book and I want to discuss a little bit about how industrial institutionalized medicine treats the elderly. And it's very, there's so many parallels between the way they treat pregnant women and the way we treat the elderly. And this is another one of them thing about, about the the profit motive. There should be, you know, I, I read some comments that said one of the somebody said in, in, in the thread, they said there should be no profit motive in, in OB. And I would disagree with that. I mean, profit motive is why you do your work. All right. You wouldn't do. I mean, you love your work and I love my work, but we couldn't do it for free. And we couldn't make a living on what Medi-Cal or the state would pay us. So there has to be a profit motive. Otherwise, you're not going to get good people to go into it. Yeah. And it's not just that we couldn't live off of the money that um, we would get through insurance reimbursements or Medi-Cal. It's that the quality of care starts to be diminished because in order to be able to make any kind of living, you have to start to see lots and lots of people and see them for a short, shorter amount of time. And there's one of the differences with the midwives um, when they were practicing, even though, again, it was it was better than not having midwives, they had to do 30 minute visits, you know, and that's very, and some of the birth centers have to do 30 minute visits. It's still three times on the average, three times longer than, right. Than what OBs do. Happy medium, right. Happy medium. 30 minutes is better than seven. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, even in my hour visits, sometimes I can't necessarily get to everything that would impact this woman's or this family's, um, experience just depends on what they need. So, um, yeah, you just can't, you just can't give the same quality care and the system is broken. You know, this is, and it was something that when I owned the birth center, it became really, you know, I always thought that it would be really great to own a business. And I had all these like ideas of how great that was going to be. But what I realized is it really does start to become about the bottom line. And that's not about like, getting rich. That's about like, how do you pay your rent? How do you market? How do you pay all of your midwives? You know, like all of the things that, that you were responsible for, um, it it does become important and it feels like the wrong motivation, but that's, that's, 
that's how we have to, you know, pay the bills, like you said. So it, it's, um, it's complex. It's not that easy to just say, like, it's not fair that you're not keeping the midwifery program. It sucks. But we're going to have to, like, look at how we do everything in order to value. I've been listening to this podcast um, for a long time now called Terrible Thanks for Asking. I think I've mentioned it before. Um, but she did this whole series about care and the value of care and how like, you know, what is the value of time when you're holding your child's hand at the pediatrician versus when um, someone is in the boardroom for an hour? It's like, we value that more in our society than we do in terms of, you know, money is time or time is money. So that whole thing has to be reworked. It's not that simple to just say like, it, it shouldn't be about money. Well, okay, then how do we solve it? Yeah. And it's bigger than you and I, but, uh, but, uh, but it's an interesting thing to see because, because the more bigger, the bigger things get, the more regulated they get, the more, the more impersonal they get. It's, 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 if A, then B, then C. And, and it's, it's so obvious that this happens and it, and it, it, it takes something it's going to take some major event or disaster to make it change. And unfortunately, the way things are dealt with now by in whenever you have that is, is to not make it less regulated and, and more individualized. It's to always make it more regulated and, and more. So one of the things I, I, when you were talking, which was brilliant, by the way, I mean, I, I think we should just Cut that out. Emily, cut that out and make a little clip of that, what Bliss just said, because it was brilliant. And I had nothing to add to it. But when I look at, at the public school system, for instance, and the teachers unions and the not going back to classroom and what they're teaching specifically in schools now, and we may have different opinions on some of the stuff that they're teaching, but I, I just think that with the coronavirus and the people keeping out, there's a lot of people that have figured out that, you know what? Public school isn't necessarily the best thing for my kid. You know, they're yeah. going to spend 12 years in public school and they're going to come out hating me or they're, they're going to, they're going to be learning things that I don't really want them to learn because they're not my value system. And yeah. the teachers clearly not maybe the teachers themselves, but the teachers union clearly doesn't care about my children. It's so obvious about what they're, what the things that they're doing, the demands that they're making, which have nothing to do with getting kids back in the classroom. Uh, so there may be a, a whole revamping of this and there might be, the public schools may, may have an attendance that's down 30 or 40% when everything finally sort of opens and normalizes because a lot of people aren't gonna be sending their kids back to public school. Yeah. And, and birth, birth should be a, thought of in the same way. And it's, it's funny that we can't crack the one and a half percent of people, even, even through this pandemic, it hasn't changed people's views that dramatically, despite the way that women are treated in the hospital sometimes and isolated and partners of doulas and family members aren't allowed. And, and uh, well, we'll talk about some other stuff when we get to it, but when we get to the COVID update, um, but it, it, there's a change that needs to take place. And I don't know how you get it. If this didn't, if COVID doesn't affect the way we look at birth and, uh, and how do you get it? How do you get that nonprofit individualized, get the middleman out of it, let the patients, which are, we call clients, 
let the individuals decide what they want. Buyer beware. Let them let them decide that this is what they want to do. And um, yeah, we, we you know I just don't I don't I don't know. It's, it's a good thing that uh, we're talking. Yeah, about. there are a lot of questions and not a lot of solutions at the moment. You know, but um, I well, was talking we have, about we have our solutions. Okay. For our individual clients. I mean, think yeah. about the lives of the women that you've taken care of yeah. and the families that you've taken care of and how different their lives are now because you took care of them. Yeah. Okay? And because they didn't get pushed through that institutionalized thing. Like we just talked about with your client with the, you know, the shower birth, whatever it was. So, okay. She's like, that's still a water birth, right? And I was like, yep, you yep. still got a water that's birth. A water birth. <laughs> yeah, it goes in your stats as a water birth. Correct. <laughs> Okay, um, just a, just an interesting thing that happens dur during this uh, coronavirus thing is that people expected, I think, that with people locked down, that they would be having more sex and be having higher, more babies. But we're out, we're you know, we're eleven months into it now, and the birth rates actually fall in the United States. And, well, there's more divorce and domestic violence, so that yeah, there's less there's less casual hookups. There's like people aren't getting aren't going out and and meeting somebody, and oops. Um, yep. That's not happening. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, the birth rate has fallen, and it's really interesting. There was a a quick article that I that I thought was interesting. Um, that in they looked at five states: Arizona, California, Florida, Hawaii, and Ohio. A good mix of population, cultures, ethnicities, political affiliations, and there were, all had significant drops in birth last year. Um, Nine months after coronavirus lockdowns began, there, there are 50,000 fewer births this year than there were in, in 2018. And in the United States, since 1971, the birth rate has been below replacement level. So immigration is very important, you know, legal immigration. And um, we, we need to have that. But despite a declining birth rate, uh, lawmakers, I love this. This is what they say. This is because this is a news article. Lawmakers have yet to lay out a national agenda to increase American births, fertilities, and family rates. Okay, what's wrong with that statement? The increase part? Lawmakers? <laughs> a national agenda? I mean, do we need, do, do, does everything need a government solution? Should there be a national agenda dictated by the government on how should we give tax breaks to people that have babies should or should we just make a public service announcement put up a few billboards and then let people decide what's best for them i don't understand why would we want to have more babies well you need in a society in order to support yourself i mean if we have a social security system and things like that you need workers coming in paying into the system when social security started back in the in 1960 no i think social security was no, maybe it was, was it 64 or was it, was it way before that? It might've been, but there were like over a hundred workers for every person who was retired. And now it's less than 10 because people are living longer. And, you know, when the, the, um, the age of retirement was 65 back then. And the average person lived to be maybe 67. Now the right. average woman lives to be well into her eighties and the average man late seventies. And yet we still, and we have fewer people paying into the system. That's why people say that the social security system is going to be, and this is what happens when you don't have 
younger people coming in or babies coming in to replace, hang on a sec, to replace um, the population as they get older, then you don't have a way to support your social security network. So, you know, we need at least a replacement population. If we're going to continue to have a social, yeah, if we're going to have a social, uh, a social net to catch the elderly people, who's going to pay it? Where's it going to come from? We're going to just print it. <laughs> Again, this is um, this is one of the ways that uh, you know the system is not working, and yet we we just keep trying to like put band aids on and continue with the system the way that it is because you know what the Earth doesn't need more people. I can no, tell you that the Earth is not better off with more. The Earth people. doesn't need more people. Okay, no. but it needs no. to have. Um, I don't know how you get less people when you have a social system like that. That's, yeah, you, you can yeah. certainly have maintenance, but you're not having maintenance now. Okay. Yeah. And, that, and countries in Europe are having a real problem with that because they have to import their labor force, and a lot of the people that come in have, don't share their values or their culture, and then it, it becomes a uh, there becomes isolated community. We don't have to get into the politics of it, but there are places in in France and in Germany and stuff where where. They don't even accept the French laws. They do they do things the way they want to do them. And right. that eventually will lead to chaos. Um, I'll leave it at that. I just think that, uh, you know, our business is fine. So I'm not complaining. About, I'm not saying about the low birth rate is affecting you and me. All right. But it, it it's a cultural problem. There's there's a lot of like, uh, culture problems. One of the other cultural problems we have is, is printing money. I mean, we're closing in on $30 trillion in national debt. It's an unfathomable number. I, I, you can't even fathom what that number is. <laughs> yeah. That's like 30 million billion or something like that. I mean, it's, it's some crazy, I, I have to do it in my head, but it's, it's, a, cra it's a crazy number. You have okay. smoke, you'll have smoke coming out of your ears if you try and do that math yeah, right I now. But that's not right. It's like 30,000 30, billion or something like that. But it's a lot of billions. Okay. It's a lot of billions. It's more than Jeff Bezos has. So then, of course, there's a lot. Or Elon Musk. Okay. Um, next, last news item of the day is um, there was an article, of a, a meta-analysis that came out about the association of cesarean delivery and the risks of autism. Okay. It's always mm -hmm. been, you know, there's been surmised. Why is the risk, why is autism rising? Used to be when couple hundred, I think babies had autism. Now it's like one in what, 50, one in 54, one in yeah, something. Yeah. I don't know, different numbers, but it's really gone up a lot. And some people say, oh, it's vaccines. No, it's this, or it's environmental, or it's what, who knows what it is. Or maybe we're just, maybe we're just calling things autism more than we used to call autism. So maybe we've just changed Probably. the diagnosis. Don't know exactly why it is, but the C-section rate has gone up 500% in the last 50 years. Yes. So this 500. is- this systemic review and meta-analysis examines the association between birth by cesarean delivery and the risk of neurodevelopmental and psychiatric disorders in the offspring compared with birth by vaginal delivery. Okay. Findings. In this systemic review, and again, there's always problems with studies and especially meta-analysis where they're going back and looking at things, but they looked at 61 studies that had more than 20 million deliveries in it. Mm -hmm. That's a large number. Big number. Birth by cesarean delivery was significantly associated with autism spectrum disorder and a deficit and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So they looked at uh, 6,953 articles 
um, encompassing 20,607,000 patients. Uh, so they found compared with offspring born by vaginal delivery, offspring born via cesarean delivery had increased odds of autism spectral disorder of 1.33. So in other words, a 33% chance, higher chance of your child having autism if you have a cesarean section. Hmm. Didn't hmm. see that on the news. Did you see that on the news? Did I see? No, I don't watch the news. So, okay. well, yeah. yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear any statement from the, uh, from April. I'm sure. And for uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the odds ratio were 1.17. So a 17% increase in the rate. And they found those to be statistically significant. Um, interestingly enough, estimates were comparable for emergency and elective cesarean delivery. So I used to talk a lot about what Michelle O'Donnell used to tell me that it was the pre-labor scheduled cesarean that had a higher rate of autism. He thought that a long time ago, and he thought it had to do with lack babies being exposed to oxytocin, to maternal oxytocin, which is your bond. Not only does it cause contractions, but it's your love bonding hormone. And he had these theories about receptors and will female babies who never got exposed to mother's oxytocin have less oxytocin receptors on their uteruses? And will those female babies end up having more dysfunctional labors 20 years later or 30 years later? And I, no, one's, no one's actually looked at that. So Tiffany in here. Um, so no one's actually looked at that, but it's an interesting theory. And here's some evidence that suggests that cesarean delivery by itself, not just the pre-labor cesareans, uh, has a higher rate of autism and a higher rate of attention deficit disorder. So these findings suggest that cesarean delivery births are associated with an increased risk of autism spectral disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, irrespective of cesarean delivery modality compared with vaginal deliveries. And of course, their recommendation is future studies on the mechanism behind these associations appear to be warranted. And yeah. Yeah. So they don't, they, they're not extrapolating the reason why, right? Whether no, it's this is the just mom. The raw data. They didn't yeah. make any proposal as to the reason why, but Michelle O'Donnell's theory is as good as, as any. It might be the microbiome. You yeah. Know, it's either the microbiome, it's the mother's um, mental state or emotional state in the different kinds of uh, the hormones that flood through your body as you deliver vaginally. Um, or, uh, yeah, has to be one or just the, um, mechanism in itself, right. The delivery, like what happens in the process as a baby is moving through the birth canal. And, you know, we talk about like how the lungs get the fluid squeezed out of them. Um, you know, maybe there's something in the actual mechanism of being delivered that way that changes your chemistry. So it's interesting. It's interesting yep. to think about. Yeah. Yep. It's just another reason why we need to be real careful about saying that, you know, cesarean sections are as safe as vaginal delivery. And when, you yeah. give, and when you're giving informed consent to people with a breech baby and ACOG says you need to tell them all the risks of breech delivery, you also should be having to tell them all the risks of cesarean delivery. And this is potentially... Uh, a risk that should be mentioned to people. Now, yes. again, a thirty percent increase over a small number is still a small number, but it's but it's not something that that we have the right to decide for our clients 
is insignificant. Everyone has the right to decide for themselves what's insignificant or what's significant or insignificant. And one of the basic tenets that I've repeated on this show many times, many uh, of medical ethics is that is that it's it, it's unreasonable to expect that two people given the same information should reach the same conclusion. Um, trying to let somebody in and it's not it's not getting in. Okay, so we're going to run out of time today because you and I just love to talk. So we're not going <laughs> to we're not going to probably get to the aging thing today. Okay. Because I really wanted to go a couple letters and then I wanted to talk a uh, COVID update, which everybody sort of likes to hear. Yeah, let's do that. And, you know, last time you said you were going to sing a song and you didn't do that either. So I have that, Yeah, I have that in my staff. We're not going to get to that today either. Yeah, I think it's uh, getting bumped off. Okay. Um, you want to talk about letters or yeah, yeah, let's two, do letters two, first. Two quick letters. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is from Gail in uh, Central America. Belize. That's awesome. Belize. We would have been there. No, we wouldn't have been. Well, no, that would have been South America. That would have been South America. Oh, never mind. Right. <laughs> Learn your geography, Bliss. Yeah, your geography and math are like, are like not to strong points for Bliss, but that's okay. Uh, we balance each other I out. Like go, I would like to go to Belize. I've heard Belize is wonderful to go for a holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why didn't I do that? Okay. Uh, so she just writes a real brief message. She says, how does one deliver a head, head of a stargazing breach delivery? That happened at the last minute after the shoulders were out and hand, on hands and knees. The head just tilted back last minute. Okay. Mm -hmm. So stargazing means basically extension of the neck. It means putting your head back. Let's, why don't you show us, please? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you, have you. Good, you have a good chin, so it's good. All right. So um, it's a tough problem because what happens sometimes, and especially... If you when you put hands on a baby, they tend to do this um, moral reflex, um, and they and they startle and their head goes back. If you've ever seen for, the, for a breach, you're talking about we're talking we're talking about we're talking about a breach birth, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. The head, That's the, why we do hands off as much as possible. Do hands off, but sometimes you have to do hands on, and occasionally you get an extended neck. Now, I would always say that beforehand, you need to know before you do a vaginal breach delivery that that baby's able to flex its head. So you should be, you should see that on ultrasound. It's or if you have really good hands, as some midwives do, and especially in these countries, you can palpate a flexed head. I'm not good at that, but but a lot of midwives can. You're better at it than I am. I don't know if you can tell, but but it's important to have a baby able to flex its head. It doesn't have to be flexed all the time. It just has to be able to flex because you want to rule out that the baby has a goiter or the baby has like torticollis, which is where the neck is is all in back and, the, and it needs physical therapy when it comes out, that sort of thing. Um, I would make sure that the woman's on her back at that point, if the head is like that, because you wanna be able to reach inside and potentially do a Marcel smelly bite maneuver with super pubic pressure at the same time. So I'm a right-handed person. So if the, on her back, I would have either, I would be pushing just above the pubic bone to try to push the back of the head to flex it a little bit. And while I'd be reaching up inside with this finger, <laughs> okay. And getting in the, the middle mouth, finger, getting in the mouth of the baby, and trying to pull the chin down and deliver the baby that way. All right, mm -hmm. but I, and again, if and sometimes if the head won't come down that way, what you can do within a rare situation is a spatial if using spatial is you can reduce station, and you can push the baby back up a little further inside. Okay, it gives you more ability to do it. So if the head if the head's locked, you know you you can you can reduce station to get the, and maybe rotate a little bit and maybe then the chin will get off whatever it's stuck on. If it's stuck on the symphysis, 
uh, uh, mom synthesis or something like that. And mm-hmm. so that's those are the maneuvers that I would do. And and uh, at that point, you have to get the baby out. You have to figure out a way to do it. Cutting an episiotomy isn't going to help you. Uh, doing a what do they call it a, a symphysiotomy or what's it called where they theoretically that you take a scalp when you cut the uh, the pubic bone, the symphysis pubis. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, and you have, and and it's it's harrowing. It's a very harrowing experience to do that. But it, you should be able to do it if there's if there's nothing uh, congenitally wrong with the baby. You should be able to get that baby's head flexed. Mm-hmm. So reducing station, lithotomy position, suprapubic pressure, not fundal, suprapubic pressure, because at that point there's nothing in the fundus. And um, the Marcel Smelly Vite maneuver is probably the best thing that you can do. If they were on the all fours, I would turn them over at that point because I think that I can do much more. But you can't do fundal pressure when someone's on all fours. It's just, I mean, it's super pubic pressure. You can't. Yeah. It's really hard. Right. To yeah. You're pushing. You don't have anything. You're pushing up against the hair. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A little bit longer letter. This is from uh, Wisconsin, and it's from Jamie, and she writes this, and I responded to her, and I told her that we would discuss it. I'm a doula from Wisconsin. I have a client who's a VBAC after two C-sections. Her first pregnancy with twins and a cesarean was performed at 33 weeks with ruptured membranes and a cord prolapse. Her second pregnancy resulted in an elective C-section because her son was breech. Her current OB has a reputation of being very VBAC supportive and has a good rapport with home birth midwives and transfer situations, whoever is suggesting requiring continuous fetal monitoring. I'm not sure how much of that is his own preference and how much of that is the hospital policy due to liability, staffing, et cetera. They have a telemetry unit, but my client and I both understand that wireless monitoring is still continuous monitoring, which comes with an increased risk of cesarean. We know that one way to minimize the risk of cesarean uh, resulting from a false positive on the monitor is to labor at home longer. That understandably makes my client nervous because of her waters breaking at home with the twins and having a cord prolapse and not knowing about it until she got to the hospital. Both of her labors started with spontaneous rupture membranes. The first at 33 weeks, the second was at 39 weeks. For this birth, my client is considering staying home to labor for a minor amount of time and having a monitorese come to her house to check her and the baby to give her peace of mind that she is safe to continue laboring at home. So basically she has three options with the variation being that when she actually goes to the hospital, One, go to the hospital and do continuous monitoring. Two, go to the hospital and insist on intermittent monitoring. Or three, stay home and be monitored by a monitorist until she's well into active labor. Okay. So she launched in the, the, um, Jamie asks, how comfortable might you be with the safety of intermittent monitoring in her situation? Well, you you would be very comfortable because that's what we do at home. (laughs) That's exactly what I told her. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she says, I don't believe there's a lot of data on VBAC after two C-sections. There's enough data on VBAC after twos. Um, the risk of an adverse event is far less than 1%. Uh, ACOG supports VBAC after two. Of course, they don't support home birthing, so they don't support uh, not. And they probably, and ACOG would support fetal monitoring because they support fetal monitoring on everybody. Um, but intermittent, I feel very comfortable with intermittent monitoring. You would feel comfortable with intermittent monitoring. And there's, there's data to support that, okay? And the second question is, there might be a question for Bliss. In order to support the structural integrity of the bag of waters, I've heard another home birth midwife suggest taking 30 milligrams of zinc, carnosine, and 500 milligrams of vitamin C 
for the rest of her pregnancy. Have you heard of this? And is this something you would suggest? Not that cocktail in particular, but for a long time, um, midwives were making recommendations to increase vitamin C. And then there was a study that came out that said that vitamin C actually could affect the integrity of the bag negatively. So I'm more of a Let leave it alone, trust nature, trust the process. Um, having having infections can um, increase the risk of having your bag rupture. So I would say just in general, staying healthy, making sure that you're staying on top of your health overall. Um, and then um, you could, as I do for all of my clients, make sure that they're on a vaginal probiotic um, starting in around 28 weeks of uh, pregnancy to just make sure that the biome is nice and balanced. That would be my recommendation. Right, right. And, and just because she ruptured at 33 weeks with twins, that's not that uncommon. And rupturing at 39 weeks before labor, that's, you made it to 39 weeks, that's normal too. So, uh, you know, I know that it happened to her twice, so she thinks it's going to happen again, but it's not abnormal. Either one of those things is not outside the norm. So, yeah. 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 Okay. So thank you, Gail. Thank you, Jamie, for, for your letters. Okay. So God, I can't believe it. We've only got 15 minutes left and we got to get a, a COVID update in. So um, evidence-based birth episode 164 just came out yesterday, I think. And I listened to it so that you don't have to. Okay. Uh, I was I list, I was listening to it this morning as well. Yeah. I would have to say that I, I love Rebecca Decker. Um, she really has her data together, but she's uh, very PC and a little naive about the, the sources that she quotes. That's my Good. opinion. Good. Did you think, uh, did you feel that way? I mean, she's um, quoting the WHO, she's quoting the CDC and I'm, you know, I'm a big WHO CDC skeptic. So yeah, that's very typical for evidence-based birth. But would love, I think everybody would love to hear, you know, what you have to say about that. Okay, because you know, because when once trust is broken, and you know, this as a practitioner, as a mother, as a person with a friendship, you break the trust with somebody or with something, it's really hard to get it back. Yeah, and we've been lied to by these organizations. You know probably all our lives, but we, but it, it's only become really evident during the, during the uh, uh, pandemic that they're, they're lying and they lie for purposes that uh, are nefarious a lot of times or economic or political. And uh, so why do we, you know, if we, if they lie about some stuff, how do you trust them on other stuff? It's very right. hard to know what to do. So, I mean, we were told that the, you know, it was a two week lockdown to flatten the curve. Right. Remember a year ago, don't wear masks. Oh, wear masks, you know, all that stuff. Remember we used to, remember we used to, like she says in the thing, we used to, we were washing down our fruit. I remember I told a story on the podcast about a man that yelled at an old man because he was touching the potatoes mm-hmm. at the grocery store, trying to pick out which potatoes he's going to buy. And he got yelled. I mean, crazy. And then she says, and then again, in all in Rebecca's defense, I know that she's, she's not medical. She says, I'm not giving medical advice. She's very clear about that. But she, she uses things like, Quote, epidemiologists believe, unquote. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Which epidemiologists believe that? The ones that that the WHO wants, that supports the WHO's position? Because there are epidemiologists and there are scientists who believe direct opposite things. I mean, I'm an OB. I'm a fellow of the American College of OBGYN. And I support intermittent monitoring. I support home birthing. All right. But... There are experts in my field who have the same 
credentials that I do who would say the exact opposite. So when you're listening to a report or something on the news or reading a news article and they say, scientists say, or epidemiologists believe, okay, um, <laughs> be really careful because actually they don't know. When it comes to coronavirus, they don't know. And their record of accuracy so far has not been reassuring. Yes. Okay? Mm-hmm. The CDC says, you know, long, they still are still saying right now, this is current, wear masks, stay six feet away from other people that you don't know, avoid crowds, et cetera, okay? Um, she says there are no trials uh, currently on pregnant women regarding the, the coronavirus vaccine. And um, I love that she calls, you know, she says breastfeeding and chest feeding. So explain chest feeding for, for me and uh, the other Neanderthals that might be listening to this podcast. When she says breastfeeding and chest feeding, what is chest because, feeding? Is that bottle feeding because, on your chest or is that because you're, no, you're not a woman? I, I, I'd like to know. Yeah, because um, for transgenders that are delivering, they may not have breasts. They might have had their breasts. So you what know, are they doing? So they're bottle feeding, right? Um, or they don't want them to be called breasts. That could be possible as well. There, are, but yeah, I have breasts. Okay. Yeah, right. they're smaller since I lost weight. <laughs> It's, it's a, it's a, it's a inclusive term. Um, and I know we've had a little bit of controversy on, on this podcast about talking about that, but it's an inclusive term. And I think that that's the most that we need to know is it's, it's, uh, allowing people to feel included in something where they are, um, they're the minority. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Let's see. I've seen in the hospital where they donated milk and the supplemental. Oh, some, somebody said something about a supplemental nursing system too. Okay. Yeah. If oh, they, I, if I get that, but that, they that, can't that's, lactate. That's, yeah, I get that, but that does. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. yeah um, so my question, I think I mentioned last podcast was about fertility and um, here's another one where she says scientists do not think it's plausible that the vaccine can affect fertility. Okay. Yeah, there's no, I, there's no I data. I somebody last week where she said that there are scientists who think it might affect the syncytiotrophoblast of this, of a current pregnancy, or theoretically, if the viral, if the mRNA virus vaccine, excuse me, stays inside your body, could do it for an unknown period of time beyond um, the current pregnancy. So for future pregnancies. So there are scientists that say both. So again, there are no studies, there are no evidence. So scientists do not thinking it's plausible is would not be enough for me to want my daughter who has almost no risk of dying from COVID, all right, to take this vaccine. And, yeah, I've, and, I've, and I've spoken to her about it and mm-hmm. I sent her a video to watch and I, you know, I, it's her decision, she'll make her decision. But I would like to advise people that when scientists or Dr. Fauci says that there are in a 20,000 pregnant women, there are no red flags. Okay. He said that on January 21st. It's like, there's no data. We just, we just agreed there are no trials on pregnant women or fetuses. So, you know, your observation, all right, isn't convincing to somebody like me. And I would be very careful uh, when you have a low risk. I mean, if you're a high risk person, 
yes, then you weigh the risks and benefits. That's how we make decisions in our lives. But when these people come out and they say, it's not plausible, don't worry about it. ACOG says there's no need to test, oh, there's no need to run a pregnancy test in a woman who is going to get the vaccine. If you're late on your period, you don't have to do it. Really? Okay. That's ACOG. Yeah. How do they know? I don't think we're going to know the effects of any of this for a very, very long time. Right. I mean, ACOG doesn't say you should get the vaccine, but they say there's no reason to decline the vaccine. Right. Okay. That's fine. I don't mind that position, but to say there's no need to test for, what, I mean, we have pregnant women when the first trimester, they, they're worried about, you know, everything. Should I, can I eat sushi? <laughs> can I like, oh my God, I had a glass of wine yesterday. I didn't know I was pregnant. Uh, all the, you know, these things that aren't going to matter, but they worry about everything. And you're saying you're going to put something in the body that's never been tested and, and you may be pregnant or you are pregnant in the first trimester and your risk of getting coronavirus or getting sick from it. By the way, more than 90% of, of women who are positive in, in pregnancy with coronavirus are asymptomatic. Okay. So um, let's see. Well, I'll skip all that. Oh, the CDC website has guidelines for hospital OB units, all right, and how they're supposed to handle the COVID. But again, it's wonder like, based on what? How are the, how is, you know, they're putting out information that people are following, but the people that put it, and everybody follows it because they don't wanna be, you know, off the rails because they're worried about liability. And so they follow the guidelines that are put out, but the guidelines are based on level C evidence. And level C evidence in, in my world is what's called consensus opinion. And what's the consensus out there right now? The consensus is to do whatever the big people say, because if you don't, you're going to get yelled at, fired, or canceled. Um, if you say what I'm saying. Yeah. Right now. Right. Interestingly enough, you know, Facebook is now like censoring people who are saying stuff against the vaccine. You know, that they're not, they're not allowing negative stuff. But I saw a post where actually in July of last year, Mark Zuckerberg was talking to Dr. Fauci on a, on a, on a like a open forum on, on Facebook. Yeah. And was questioning the validity of the, the idea that he was questioning about the possibility of a vaccine and, and the worries about an mRNA vaccine because it was under development at that time. So Mark Zuckerberg was actually questioning the vaccine on Facebook. All right. I wonder if he'll censor himself. <laughs> I don't think so, but that's okay. Um, they say this uh, CDC considers pregnant women to be an increased risk category, uh, even though 95% um, of people who get it when they're pregnant are treated as an outpatient. And most are asymptomatic, so they're not even treated at all. Okay. Um, people that are in the hospital with respiratory problems and are pregnant, they are more severely they can be more severely affected, but the overall risk to a woman who's pregnant is less now than it was during the H1N1 outbreak, all right? And we have an increase in uh, preterm birth rate during, the, um, during this pandemic, but most of that is iatrogenic, okay? Meaning that doctors think that if they induce the patient, maybe she'll get better faster or Maybe we need to get the baby out before the mother gets sicker or something. There's actually no evidence to support that that happens. 
and that inducing somebody early will will improve the outcome of the mother's uh, coronavirus, unless it's some severe respiratory problem going on and with her oxygenation being really bad, all right? And um, a study showed that 65% of women who have coronavirus are getting cesarean sections. Now, this study did come out of China and China has a high C-section rate anyway. So I don't know if that's true or not, but two thirds. And again, there's no, there's no indi in, um, indication for cesarean section because of coronavirus. It would only be for obstetrical indications. Same as always, okay. They also say delayed cord clamping is perfectly fine. Okay, so. Didn't, didn't they say something about um, that uh, immunity antibodies are being passed to the baby? Yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm actually just gonna get to that. So yeah. vertical, vertical transmission from mother to baby is very rare. And they looked at, they looked at a lot of placentas in not, well, they've never done a lot of studies, but there are studies where they've looked at hundred or 200 placentas or, or babies or something like that. And they found that uh, they didn't find the virus in the, in the placenta in most of them. So it doesn't seem to be transmitted from the mother to the placenta or to the baby. And they are finding that most babies born to mothers who have coronavirus, especially mothers who had it earlier in their pregnancy have good levels of, of maternal IgG. So these babies are, are protected, which is another reason why a baby born to a woman with COVID um, is likely not gonna catch it when they're skin to skin with mom or breastfeeding. Mom should wear a mask, all right? But um, because, yeah, because you don't wanna actively be maybe breathing on the baby if, you're, if you have COVID, but there's no contraindication to breastfeeding because those babies have already gotten your your IgG antibodies, which cross the placenta. And they're going to be getting them through the milk because that's how and then it, passes, milk it passes in the milk as well. Correct. Mm -hmm. okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it is, it is again, women who get Corona in the first or second trimester are their babies are more likely to have higher levels of IgG than women who get it third, which makes sense because IgG takes a while to develop. IgM is the first one that develops, but IgM doesn't cross the placenta. Supposedly it's a bigger molecule, I guess. Okay. Couple more things because we're going to run out of time. Wait, like in two minutes. All right. Um, Royal College of OBGYN supports birth partners with masks, and most U.S. hospitals do as do also. But doulas is still very sketchy around the country. All right, and um, with you know that, and there have been like we said, there's increased C-section rates in women with coronavirus, or or just increased cesarean section rates in general in the last year. All right. Is there a correlation between the fact that doulas aren't being allowed in and the higher cesarean section rates? Because you know, correlation doesn't always cause causation. All right. I mean, they don't, they're not always equal, doesn't equal causation. But it makes makes sense. And it's very local location dependent whether doulas are allowed or not. So you should check it. And Birth Monopoly on their website, birthmonopoly.com, has a hospital tracker. So people can go to birthmonopoly.com and check their local hospitals and they usually keep track of how they're treating with partners or doulas, what's, what's required, that's pretty cool. Uh, remember guidelines are opinions when there's no good data. So again, I just wanted to say that and the last thing I wanna say is just because something is common doesn't mean it's correct. Right, absolutely. Correlation does not equal causation and I've come up with a new one now is commonplace does not equal correctness, all right? So that's my new thing because 
just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It gets back to the Thomas Paine quote, the long habit of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial appearance of being right. And that's it. So we're out of time. And I didn't, get, I didn't get touched on the other topic that I really wanted to get to today. So we'll get to that. And then we didn't talk about uh, vaccines and uh, kids going to school. I got a really cute comment on that. So we'll talk about that next time. And that's, yeah. And then uh, my song, we'll do, we'll, one of these times we'll run out of time. I mean, we'll have time and I'll do my song. Okay. You and I, you and I will Stay sing. tuned for Stu's song. Right. Okay. This has been, this has been my podcast. It's Dr. Stu's podcast. And uh, you can find us hopefully soon on the Dr. Stu podcast app, which will be back up again. We have some changes. Go ahead. I was going to say, we're, we're some changes are coming down the road, and uh, we're excited about it. So yeah, see Dr. Supakas may, may be going uh, big time, maybe. Big time, big time. yes. So we'll see what yeah. happens with that. And uh, again, askdrstu at gmail.com or bliss at birthingbliss.com or on her Instagram feed uh, with direct messaging, right? Yep, birthing bliss okay. midwifery. Yeah. So uh, we, again, we know that you have an hour every week. I know that. Uh, thank you for uh, Tiffany, Nicole, Natalie, Megan, Mariana, Leticia, Jennifer are still with us, and all the people that will be watching. We know that you have an hour um, every week to give us is really cool because there's so many things to do and so many things to listen to. So we're honored by your uh, loyalty to us. Please share us. Please give us a good rating. Please uh, uh, write a good review if you want to. Um, once the podcast app gets back up again <laughs> or on Facebook or anywhere else. Okay. And so this particular recording will be on Facebook and rumble. Um, and it will be back up on the app as soon as we can get the technical issues sorted out. Right. Right. Oh, and here's somebody's just signing in right now. She's probably an hour behind. <laughs> I'm Maggie. You're an hour behind because we're just ending. So you can find us as bliss says, you can find us on rumble.com under birthing instincts, all one word. All right, this is podcast number 201. And until next time, we'll see you. Bye-bye.